when I'm young, natural one, make it easy. We can take it in time. Yeah, we can make it. You ever hear that song? Does that sound familiar at all? I just heard you sing it. It's a song from the 90s. It's like, when I'm young, natural one. Alright, never mind. It's one of those 90s rock songs that will stick out in your mind if you've ever heard it. And if you haven't, it, it'll just be like, what are you doing? Just like a minute ago when you were playing a Bee Gees song, and I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, but uh, the reason I bring up that song also is because uh, of one of the films that I watched uh, for the list uh, this week. Our uh, week, our, our uh, how do I pronounce it? Every time we do a podcast, we talk about a movie that neither of us have seen, but we've told each other to see. And uh, this week, there... The movies don't really have a lot to do with each other as far as subject matter on the surface, but they are each about what it means for a man to have a purpose in life. What do you think about that? That's a pretty interesting assessment. Yeah, though. I think that it's something that, you know, both these characters in these two movies uh, that we're going to talk about, they they both really want something, and they're driven to it to a point where it's like, wow, wait, this person is actually doing this. Can you really believe it? Uh, you know, and very different ways because the movie that I have seen is the natural and, uh, Andrew has seen close encounters of the third kind, but Jack's going to talk first. So, all right. So the natural, uh, so starring, uh, Mr. Robert Redford, right. And uh, Robert Duvall, Robert Duvall. There are a lot of people in this movie. Barbara that, Hershey. Barbara Hershey, Kim Basinger. Right. Glenn Close is... Uh, it's interesting because there are two kind of female leads, but it's like one is the kind of light side, and one is kind of... I'm not going to say femme fatale, but she is more of like the dark side, you could say. Yes. Um, it's so not like I, either of them dress that way. But the point is, this is a movie about baseball. Yes. Or a baseball player. Or is it? Uh, so what's the synopsis? I, I see what you're doing here. Uh, Robert Redford uh, plays uh, Roy Higgs. Hobbs. Hobbs. Damn it. I knew it started with an H. I just watched this movie. Hobbs. Thank you. Roy Hobbs is a guy who is, I guess, roughly in the movie, he's about 40. They don't really pinpoint exactly, but he, you know, he looks like Robert Redford in the early 80s. So he doesn't look like, you know, the young Robert Redford anymore. And yet he has somehow been spotted by a scout while playing, I guess, in some little minor league team and is brought in to play on a, a major league team in New York. And I they don't specify, but is, in, is this in the 30s or 40s? This is like the 1920s. You think that early? Yeah. Okay. All right. Because I, I wasn't totally sure. Like, they don't really give you that many historical indicators but it has that early 20th century feel to it. Certainly. Um, and, uh, you know, he just, you know, he, he becomes like the oldest rookie player to join a team. Uh, Wilford Brimley is the coach of the New York team. I'm for, now forgetting the name of the team. They call him pop. Uh, well, the well, team is called the New York Knights, Knights which is significant you. actually. Uh, but we'll get well, I'll be that. curious about what you think about that. So here's yeah, Wilford the premise. Brimley, Wilford Brimley doesn't want him on the team. He tries to bench him and yet, the rest of the team sucks, so they they aren't any good. So ultimately, he's like, "All right, go to go go to bat," and he turns out to be like the best baseball player ever. Yes, um, it's you know what this movie reminded me of a little bit, just a little, not not all the way, but a little bit. Uh, Sergeant York. 
Interesting. Can you see that? It's about a guy who seems unassuming. He comes from the farm country, and yet he's the best at what he does. Oh, yeah. You know, Sergeant York, he becomes the best at what he does, you know, by being a sharpshooter, which we talked about in another List podcast. Here, uh, Roy Hobbs is just, not only can he hit, but he also can pitch. You know, that's the thing where I'm like, all right, are you filmmakers getting a little greedy here? Is it well, not he's necessarily the best because do you think? All right, so let me guess. What this film is is uh, I, do you it, think it, it has a religious context has, to you? No, I, it has a mythic quality. Okay, and but still, think. Uh, is it about the lightning? It, it's not about the lightning. Huh. Okay. But, but hold I on, thought just that was a connected with it. it. The lightning has to do. All right, this is hard to explain. But it gives what this movie does is it gives baseball this really mythic status, and yeah. th- people nowadays look back at the time in the 1920s as oh, sure. this idealized period in baseball. Oh yeah, which, yeah. At, at a time at which Babe Ruth played, and yeah. Babe Ruth, he was great hitter and a great pitcher. Now let me ask you something. Uh, now, now, first off, uh, the version I watched uh, on is the director's cut. Was okay. that the version you watched? No. Okay, then I'm I'm wondering if the version I watched had any different structure or any different scenes because in the movie I watched, the movie opens and it it almost seems like it starts ahead in the future and Robert Roy and, Hobbs is and sitting Roy at Hobbs the train look, station. Yeah, but and he's like kind of looking back on his life or something. Yeah. I wasn't sure if that was what it was, and then it then it goes into his whole story of becoming the baseball player. But there's a moment where he's playing, and again, I don't know if this is in the version you watched, which is the theatrical one, but he meets Joe Don Baker. Yeah. Okay, you've seen that. All right. He's supposed to be, he's supposed a, to be Babe Ruth. He's supposed to be a Babe Ruth surrogate. Yeah, because he's not, he does the thing where he like points out as right. if that's where I'm going to hit. And he very much plays like Babe Ruth. He's kind of a loud mouth. He's a big guy. <laughs> he, Better than he, Mitchell. Right. <laughs> um. Yeah, so... Yeah, that was the one part where I was thinking, all right, are they going to do this through the whole movie of cutting back to whether this is his, whether this is the future or the past? That was a little confusing early on. But again, I don't know if that was Barry Levinson trying something different for his updated director's cut. Again, it had about 10 minutes extra footage, so I can't tell you what was different because I haven't seen the full movie before. Um, I could see the mythic quality to it. Um you know the the he he has like this purpose and wait do yeah wait doesn't barbara hershey bring up homer not homer she not homer he brings up the he brings up greek mythology to him was that in the did you see that scene where they're talking in the rail car yeah yeah but there's a there's a quote i wrote down for her she said well, this is after he struck out uh, Joe Don Baker. Okay. They said, she said it was just like watching Sir Lancelot jousting. Okay. All right. That's uh, that's what I heard. All right. Well, I thought I heard the Greek part. Um, but yeah. So. But the reason why that is significant is because the movie is about baseball. Yeah. But it's also <sighs> okay. <laughs> it's also. But wait, this uh, is gonna sound crazy, but I'm just gonna say it. It's heavily influenced by Arthurian legend. Okay, so that's why the knights have to right. deal with it. You have have you seen the Fisher King? Yeah. Okay. It, but you know the the basic story of the Fisher King, which is 
There's yeah. a king who has a wound that cannot heal. Yeah. And you have to make the wound whole uh, by doing a sort of quest. And in a way, this is kind of what happens to Roy Hobbs. Because he, early on, he gets shot. Okay, yeah, yeah. So he gets, yeah, yeah, he gets shot and that's uh, when he's younger. And he kind of becomes like a wanderer for a while. Right. Or at least that's what we can infer uh, he's on his way to to play baseball for the yeah. Cubs, and he gets shot by Barbara Hershey. Yeah, this character named Harriet Bird, because mm-hmm. he's trying to become the best. She like they, like, she's some for some reason hunting that down came, athletes. That, that came out as like a real shock, you know, and she shoots him too. Yeah, know? it happens pretty early in the movie, and uh, and yeah, so it gives him it definitely gives him a mysterious quality. The fact that he comes in. He doesn't tell people about what happened to him. Part of that is because, uh, you know, he doesn't want to know that there was this kind of murderous moment that happened. Um, but uh, as far as the actual things that are in the movie, uh, you know, we mentioned some of the other actors. I was there are a couple of moments where I was sitting here watching the movie, and I'm glad I wasn't in a theater watching it because I might have said out loud, "Michael Madsen." Yeah, and, Michael Madsen uh, pops up and, for just a little bit. And also this guy, Mike Starr, is on the team. He's a character actor who's been in a lot of things. Um, and I mentioned Kim Basinger. She was uh, she was Kim Basinger-y. I, I guess she worked for what the role asked her. Um, I found the, 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 the kind of owners of the team so, like, at times almost kind of over-the-top dark. Like, there's that scene where... Um, they tell, you know, like Roy has to go see, uh, the owner of the team and he's shrouded in darkness in his office. And he's like, why don't you, uh, you like being in the dark? And then this whole exchange between the two of them where he's like, what, you don't like the dark? And Roy's like, I don't like it cause I can't see what's, <laughs> what's in it. Right. Which is, it's a very interesting little exchange. Like there's a lot about Roy Hobbs that, you know, he's a very simple character. That's why I also bring up Sergeant York because I feel like if this had been in the fort, if this had been shot years earlier, you could have kept a lot of the same story. It's it's not a even though it's a movie that can be watched by adults, it's it has a wholesome quality to it. I could have seen Gary Cooper as uh, Roy Hobbs, right? Um, but you know, he, he but Gary Cooper strict... had actually uh, played Lou Gehrig in a film. Well, in Pride of the Yankees. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um. So, I mean, other things I like about this movie, um, you know, it's, uh, I like some of the, uh, there are moments where there are really good kind of movie lines. There's that moment where, uh, Redford's talking to Glenn Close in the hospital and, you know, he said, he kind of lays out what his whole mission was where he's like, you know, I could walk down the street and people would go, there goes Roy Hobbs, the best there ever was. And Glenn Close responds, well, you live two lives, your life and the one you live after. Yeah. So, or I guess the one you want to try to live. So it's kind of, the movie also has a quality that made me think a little bit of Mad Men, which I liked. They have this guy who's living, who's living in this very successful uh, job that he's doing, but people don't know about him really. And that kind of adds to the mystique. You know, Robert Duvall keeps on trying to prod into who this guy is for his illustrations and his articles. Yeah. And and yet he keeps everyone at a distance, but that doesn't make him unlikable. If anything, people almost like him more. He becomes, as you say, like this star. Yeah. Or a knight. Um, 
and I, I appreciated that. Um, you know, is it the, you know, is it a movie I would watch over and over again? I, I don't know. It's, uh, I could have, like, this would be probably a nice movie to watch with, like, my brother or my dad. I feel like that's, you know, it's a good guy type of movie mm. in that way. Not in a way that's really meaty, but that it's meant to kind of bring out the guy heart, so to speak. Oh, you know what's something I like, though? In the climax, you know, of course, it's one of those big all-or-nothing type of games that are happening. It's not all on Hobbs. The team actually finally kind of picks up a little bit yeah. and is playing, like, a real game. Right. Uh... You know, I, I like that part of it. That if it had all been on him to win the game, it would have been a little unrealistic. Well, there is. I Do don't think, think realism is this film's strength. No, it's, here, it's more like embracing a mythic old Hollywood type of stature. I don't even think it's an old Hollywood thing. There are times when, based when outlandish thing happens. Anytime Roy Hobbs hits a ball. Something crazy happens. It, it goes into uh, a gi- into a light. He when he first hits the ball, he literally knocks the stuffing out of it. Yeah, where it becomes like a ball of yarn. I love that scene because I love that shot. Yeah, he, he hits the ball and the cover comes off, and then it's like the fielders are just struggling to grab this ball of string, and then Dude, by the time they throw it in, it's just a, a ball. Messic- yeah, and then the coach comes out and is like, "That's not a ball. Show us a real ball." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's a little ridiculous. But it I is, don't. There, yeah, there are some ridiculous things about this movie. Like I but said, I just, think that's great. Okay, because it just adds to the sort of mythic quality that of the story that they're trying to tell. I Roy Hobbs is basically a character who is freakishly good at what he does. Yes. Yeah. Although, what's interesting though, I they do trot out. I'm not going to, I don't know if I would say it's a sports cliche, but it is something out of Rocky where he starts to not do that well. He goes on a slump as he is uh, going with Kim Basinger. Yeah. I wonder if that's supposed to be like, you know how Rocky, it's like women, weakened legs, you know, that well, thing where he's kind of being poisoned by her or something. Oh Yeah, that's, that is the point. Yeah. That is the point the film is trying to make. I, it seemed like, yeah, they were making it, they were making a little... Not so subtly, you could say. It's like, oh, montage time. Oh, hey, uh, we're having fun together. And yet, <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's... Yeah, definitely not a subtle movie in some ways. But, you know, Redford's really good in it, too. Right. And do I... My time? Or do I still have time? Okay. Um, what's this movie? I really like the I like the scenes between Redford and Glenn Close. She doesn't have that many scenes in the movie. No, and what I, I love about her performance been, is I thought she would have been in the movie more. Maybe, but what I love about her performance is that she's ob- she's set up to be the obviously wholesome woman in his life. She's directly contrasted against all the other women he that are in the film. Yeah, but she doesn't lay it on too thick. No, she's she's just she's a very, normal person. Yeah, she's she's very subtle. Yeah, yeah, the and the scene where she kind of tells him that he has a son. She doesn't come out and say it though. She just says, uh, you know, we so I have a son and uh he needs his father. He lives in New York. Yeah. And it's, I, and it's, it's obvious. And Rev Redford's looking there like <laughs> When you see the film again, you you see that it's something that she's trying, she wants to tell him but doesn't know how. 
Yeah, it's one of those kind of uncomfortable things. But then, of course, you know, then she comes in for a hug and it's a little bit clear. Um, but yeah, I liked her very much in it. Uh, Wilford Brimley is also, whenever you see him in a movie, he's he's a guy. You know, how do we get, we don't really have guys like that anymore. Well, he was an old uh, an old bugger by the time he was got pretty old. That. Yeah, him in that and the thing, he's you know pretty unshakable. Yeah, uh, yeah. Did I mention Mike? Yeah, Michael Madsen. He kind of disappears from the movie at a in a spectacular point. way. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what it was. All right. Uh, oh well, he disappeared and became Mr. Blonde. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right you're gonna bark all day babe ruth or are you gonna bite <laughs> so now uh we come to your movie and man i'm excited about this i thought you'd be well i mean and it continues a bit of our uh talk from a previous episode about uh mr steven spielberg so so go ahead close encounters of the third kind it's yes. a story of roy neary right roy neary we have two boys yeah, there we go. That's wow, a... that's something I did just realized right this second. Two men named Roy who are after something in this world. Right, Roy Neary, who's played by Richard Dreyfuss. Yes, he is a he 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 does like surveillance he's, work. For he's the, like, like a county. lineman, or he's an electrician for the, like who works on power lines, and he has a close encounter with aliens, and it's about uh, him trying. It's first half of it's about Richard Dreyfuss trying to find these aliens again. And try to get the ear out of his, the worm out of his ear that they've kind of put in his mind. Well, yeah, it's because it's not just with him, but also p- other people who get kind of contacted right. by Right, people them. who get contacted by the aliens basically have this psychic link that just won't leave them alone. They keep seeing this giant mound. And while Terry Gar, she's this uh, woman who uh, has a little kid and she, and he gets, and his, her son gets taken away by the aliens, uh... She keeps making drawings, whereas he makes gigantic dioramas in his house. Yeah, he makes sculptures, which is really interesting because, well, I'll get to that later. But (laughs) on on the other hand, there are the there are these various government agencies which are trying to make contact with aliens. Yeah, and you have them. One of them is led by uh, Francois Truffaut. Yeah, who plays someone not named Francois Truffaut? It's uh, Lacombe. Yeah, Lacombe. So let me get it out of the way. Okay. This is a film about communication. It is. Thank and you. And they set it that up from the first scene. This was actually something I'd seen Close Encounters of the First of the Third Kind uh, on Labor Day. Okay. And I saw like most of it, and then I watched the end before I went to bed. And I was thinking about it, kind of going to bed, and I laid down in my bed. I'm just thinking about it, and I'm thinking about that first scene where they're in the desert. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it comes to me, oh my God, the movie's about communication. Why didn't I see this before? I wrote it down on a piece of paper that was right next to me. Like, there, I won't forget. It's funny that you had to, you thought back to the beginning when the whole ending is about communication. Right. But that first scene where they're in the desert, they're in Mexico. Yeah. And... First of all, Lacombe, he speaks mainly French. Yes. And he has a translator who has to speak English to a- another guy who's trying to talk to the Spani- yeah. Spanish-speaking authorities. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. And everyone's just talking, and there's a sandstorm swirling around them, and they're trying to figure out why are these airplanes in the middle of the desert since they've been missing since the 1940s. Yes. And it's a... Uh, 
great scene because so much is going on and yeah it, and but central to it is this communication problem yeah and that bears that communication problem is basically universal yeah it's not just people talking to other people it's the aliens trying to communicate with humans it's the uh you know trying to let them know what's going on it's that psychic link between yeah. the aliens and the people they meet it's uh, and basically the strange manifestations of the aliens. Like when, when Terry Gar's son is basically kind of kidnapped by the aliens. Yeah. Like that's how it seems. Like she gets freaked out because all the appliances are coming. <laughs> like, yeah. And I'm like, they all kind of turn on one after the other. Yeah, and, and, uh, and it's like, it almost carries like a quality, like a uh, pre poltergeist or something. Yeah. It's. It's like, well, the aliens clearly chose the most startling and obnoxious way to communicate, but that then that's part of the problem. The the aliens are having trouble just basically talking to humans. Mm. And they they don't mean to scare people, but basically this is just what's happening. And it's interesting that the first character who actually sees an alien yeah. in the film is her son, this mm -hmm. little boy who doesn't speak. Yeah, he, he barely speaks. Like but he says a few lines. He's he like, says a toys, few. Yeah. Toys. And then like Nirian's like goodbye. You know. Yeah. He's he's kind of just learning to speak. And yeah, his communication is almost more in the eyes to me. Yeah. He doesn't. He's not reliant on verbal communication because he's a little kid. Yeah. So, but and when he does see that alien, like we don't see him. We all we see is like food pulled out of the refrigerator. And, yeah. Like, you just see and his a face. Doggy door. And at first he's surprised, and then he smiles. Yeah. It's like you wonder what are they doing to make him look like that. And uh, as a trivia, well, I mean, as a movie, as a movie making trick, I mean, you know what they did on the set? What they had like a crew member dressed up in a gorilla outfit. And he pulled off his mask to show his face, and that's when the kid smiled. <laughs> cool, but yeah. I mean, even but even within the story, it's like he transcends the communication barrier mm -hmm. almost by virtue of his innocence. Yeah, and let me and let me tell you my favorite scene. Okay. in this movie, please, because this was kind of a weird revelation to me. Mm. My favorite scene is when the government agents show up in India. When they when they do their homage to Lawrence of Arabia with everybody pointing up at once, <laughs> right? And that's a, that's a great shot. I'll get into that later. But it's these Indian, uh, I w I don't know if you'd say ascetics, monks, uh, people who are just uh, spirit uh, who are just spiritual. Yeah. They're they're chanting what becomes that that five note combination. Yeah. And I love the sound of just those voices <laughs> yeah. singing that music, and then. What I love next is the way they they do all these different shots. The the agents go on top of the uh, on top of the mountain and they ask some guy to translate them for us. And again, another communication thing. And he asks, and so you see it from his point of view, like on the mountain, and he yells, "Where did the sounds come yeah. from?" And then they switch to ever the then they yeah switch you to see the background and then the foreground becomes like Rah! right, and then the foreground becomes all the hands pointing up. Yeah, at, just super simple, and it's. I don't yeah. notice shots very often because I don't come from a film background and mm -hmm. things, but it was it almost it kind of draws attention to it. Yeah, in a way, but not in a bad way. No, no, it's no. Not, I'm not, like no, I'm not saying obvious. that either. No, no, me neither. Um, yeah, I um, I've been talking for a long time. So why don't you give it, us it's, some? It's okay. Uh, no, I, I I love the hell out of this movie. I um, the more times I see it, the more I love it more. Um. 
I just think the the quality of the direction is uh, just staggering. The way that um, that Spielberg lays out these these characters and how it's you know Roy Neary he's a guy who's a kind of tragic troubled character he becomes because of he's this whole like... alien invasion because he has this family that's a fairly normal unit uh, you know he has the kids who look up to him his wife is. Uh, Terry Gar, I think. No, Terry Gar is the other character. No, no, the other character is Melinda Dillon. Oh, I made a mistake then. <laughs> That's okay. Um, and yet he, as you know, he's losing his mind, and the family doesn't know what to do for him. But uh, and they, they eventually they leave him. Although yeah. you completely understand why they do that because he's <laughs> yeah he's throwing, throwing like like plants into the house. But he's a character like another character in a movie I asked you to watch, Fearless. Remember Jeff mm. Bridges' character? Yes. He's had this experience that, and he, and he cannot communicate. Another communication issue. He cannot communicate what exactly is his obsession yeah. is. Yeah, all he can do, like he, he's like in the bathtub wailing at one point, and his family's just like, "What's going on?" He's like, "I don't know." Yeah, and it's, and yeah, you could feel the tragedy of it, and yet, um, for me, it's interesting when I hear then about Spielberg and how insanely personal this movie was and about like the sort of abandonment issues with his father i think that he was dealing with in this movie and the interesting thing is how in years later when he put he put out kind of like a he's like in a way he, he was like oliver stone he put out three versions of this movie um <laughs> well for originally it kind of slightly got rushed out for christmas in 77 mm. um i guess i mean he was happy with the movie but he wanted to go back to add a couple of things. Like, there's this one shot where Roy's car is driving, and then you just see the shadow of the ship passing over him. Yeah. I don't remember that? He added that for the 1980 special edition. However, what the studio told him was, all right, we'll let you go back and add some more stuff, but we got to see inside the spaceship. <laughs> so, for the... They, you know, he really was against that, but he he shot it because he wanted his other stuff. So if you watch the Close Encounters special edition from 1980, you get a scene which shows Roy Neary inside the ship, which is kind of pointless. Yeah, it's kind of silly. Um, so for the 1998 DVD release, he put out kind of the final version, which took out the inside the ship but kept in everything else. He now says he would have not had Roy go off on the ship at the end. Hmm, and it's weird because he says like now he's like as a father now it's like I can't I wouldn't be able to do that. Because yeah, because even though his family's left him it's still kind of an abandonment. He is leaving his family behind to go off on this journey and who knows he'll probably never come back. Yeah. Uh, Although those other people did come back who they who had did. been taken by the uh, the spaceship. Yeah, but they Although, they, they didn't when, really choose to go. They were probably taken during like the war or whatever it was. It was a whole bunch of other things. But, but the point is though, I but I I love that he goes on the ship at the end. It create it does it makes you uncertain about okay, you know, Roy Neary is kind of, is the hero of the story, but he's not like the best character in a way because he's but you could say because of his experiences with the extraterrestrials they've he's now he it's almost like he has no choice it's been like this calling for him right and he is basically chosen because he's the only person there who they've but, contacted who shows yeah. up but the point is morally speaking there's this gray area which i think was really strong that spielberg went there 
Yeah. And yet it's, it's, it's not clear cut. No, it's not clear cut. Um, I also love how uh, Lacombe uh, is interacting with it and how he gets so much genuine joy discovering things about the music. He's like, oh, oh look, look, look. Like he's kind of, he doesn't really make any drawings or anything like that, but he has the same kind of drive that the characters who have the full encounters do. Yeah. So that by the time he uh, finally meets them, it's, you know, you just see so much joy beaming on his face. You know, as he's doing like the sign language, I really like right. that moment between them. Uh, how long the the music goes on for is really great in the climax. Uh, it, that scene is a lot like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Hmm. Oh, because a everybody lot gruesome. A but... lot of people come together and. Oh, and a speaking discovery. of which, people looking at things. The most Spielbergian of all Spielbergian things. There is thing, there is a lot of that. This but is people looking at things overload. There there every is, other shot is people looking at things. Well, especially in the climax, the camera pushes up and you see like people looking at and things. pans across groups of people looking at things. But yeah, you have. But I think that for this movie, it's warranted. There might be other movies where you might all right, give it up already. But. Uh, uh, but yeah, there's real awe in this movie. There's also some humor, like that whole, the scene where Roy is moving all the stuff into the house, I think yes. is really funny. <laughs> the way that he suddenly slows down for a second, he's like, hey, where are you guys going? You know, he's yeah. like, we're going away for it. Wait, wait, why, why are you going away? No, no, don't go away. And then he, like, he tries to get in the car <laughs> and he falls off. And, and they drag him into the street and then, and then all the neighbors are watching him and he just gets up he goes walks back, back to his house. house. <laughs> yeah, or how uh, the moment that he realizes what devil's tower really looks like there's a looney tunes cartoon of duck dodgers in the background yeah <laughs> um oh and of course uh the john williams score yeah. is phenomenal um you know, even just down you know he he talked about in an interview how it took a really long time to come up with those five notes right and originally it wasn't going to be five it was going to be something a little bit shorter and then it became longer and they ha they finally sold on five because it's somehow that perfect little moment, I guess. Hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, just so many brilliant movements. Uh, kind of in the same way that E.T. ends with this beautiful orchestral suite, so Close Encounters ends. Uh, the visual effects, I think, hold up better than a lot of visual effects today. And it's not... Uh, and it's very strange because... Those, those small alien ships, we yeah. never really get a handle of what they look like. But you, but they have real presence, though. Yeah, they act in a certain way, and yeah, uh, they they have a function. And but that big mothership is really atypical for what we'd expect as from a, from an alien spaceship. Yeah, it's a lot less tangible. It has these strange, mm -hmm. like it has a, like a saucer shaped bottom and these lights on the top that change that morph and change colors and this, yeah, this weird kind of sticky thing coming out yeah. of the bottom which is also its mm -hmm. top uh but yeah that's a really sort of amorphous sh atypical shape that uh you don't see in, a, in a other movies yeah um yeah i'm not sure what my favorite scene in this movie would be though um it, it's a tough call i mean there are a lot of just so many great scenes in this uh i kind of just like when he's freaking out at uh transfers like, how come i know so much yeah. I want to know what's going on. What the hell are you people? He turns like Daffy Duck for yeah. a second. Uh, so final thoughts? Uh, 
Uh, I think not only is this just basically really good, it's also a good movie in a spiritual sense. Yeah, right? I think Jodorowsky would have a lot to say about this. Mm. And if he didn't, I would make him say things about it. Yeah, it it's one of the Spielberg masterpieces that's up there with my favorites. Time. Yeah, God, I love this movie. So... If you have not seen these films, if you haven't seen The Natural, and if you haven't seen Host Counts of the Third Kind, or if, look. You, or if you have seen them, watch them again, because they're there, they're out there. Tell, like us, I, what, tell us your thoughts. Yes, please uh, email us at wagesofcinema at gmail.com. Uh, you can also tweet us, uh, or you can tweet me at Jack Gattinella, uh, or send a message to us on Facebook, uh, where we have a page, uh, The Wages of Cinema Podcast. And uh, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. Uh, if you're listening to us on iTunes, you could uh, please give us uh, a rating if uh, you do so, please. Uh, we'd love to uh, try to compete with some of the heavy hitters out there. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, um, oh, by the way, so our next event is going to be on... We might as well talk about this briefly, can we? Yeah. Uh... September 22nd. If you are in the uh, greater upper uh, northeast Jersey area. or If you're in and around New York City, you might want to come down to Bergen County. At the yes. Midland Park Library, Jack and I are giving a talk. Uh, the Wages of Cinema Animation Show, which is about the most important ten anima animated films of all time. Yes, and uh, we'll go over them uh, piece by piece. Uh, break down why they're important in history. And uh, maybe show some clips and uh, take some questions. Uh, take, hang, come along with us. It, it'll be fun. Yeah, if you want to meet us, we're no, actually not that bad. And maybe I will sign somebody's arm. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but when we come back, we're going to talk about a film that's having its 20th anniversary this month. Yes, and uh, it will get you closer to God. <laughs>